God, how can we even begin to describe what you have offered to us in Jesus through faith in Christ, your death, your resurrection, the only means of salvation. It's not by works so that no one can boast. It's only by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. God, thank you for drawing us in. Thank you for what we've just sung, the oneness that we have with God, the creator, the sovereign, the the one over all because of the work of Jesus. And thank you, O God, for your Holy Spirit, whom you send to indwell our hearts, to live with us day by day. And he's here with us now as we will sit under the teaching of the word, the word that was inspired by the spirit. The holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the spirit of God. And so, Lord, as you spoke to the prophets, speak to us again today. May your word and your truth be clear. God, may we know and see and love you as you have called us to love you. And may the world recognize that there is something significant, something different, that there is glory shining through. It's not our glory. It is the glory of God that is shining through. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to diminish us, to remove the parts of us that stand in the way of shining the brilliance of the glory of God from us. Your light, your life, your truth, your character. May that permeate us and flow from us, overflow day by day as we engage this world for Jesus. Help us, O God, to keep first things first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that... uh, that many, if not all of you, have had a chance to be a guest in someone's home. And if you have had a chance to be a guest in someone's home, and you have children, you have gone through the process of of, of helping your kids learn how to be the right kind of guest, right? Because being a guest, it says a lot about who you are. I'm going to ask for a little bit of participation, all right? So maybe we'll start with the kids. Kids, what are some of the things that your parents have said are really important when you go and you have a meal at somebody's house? What are some things that are really important? Yes, John. What's really important? Behave yourself. Listen to mommy and daddy. First time obedience. I like that one. That's a good one. Yeah, how about you? Use your manners. That is very important. What else? What's important when you go have a meal at somebody's house? You sit down on the table. They serve you Brussels sprouts. Okay, what, over there, Sophia. What's that? Eat some Brussels sprouts. Oh, man. Seriously? Your parents tell you to do that? Okay, that's good. Good, good parenting. Yes. Don't complain. Perfect. Do you have something different or is that same one? Same one. Don't complain. I think that probably goes across the board, doesn't it? Yeah, good. How about you? Well, 
Thank you for hosting us. It was so good to be at your house. Good, yes. Okay, don't ask to go to other parts of the house that are, the doors are shut for a reason, right? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh huh. Very important. What else? Okay, uh, parents, okay, you can, you can participate now. Parents, what, what's important to you? You go to somebody's house, what are some of the rules? Don't leave a mess. That's good. You, you're playing with your stuff, your toys, don't leave a mess. What else? Okay, same rules that apply at home apply there. It's not free reign. You're not in somebody else's turf, so you can't do different things. Good. What else? Don't touch anything. That's exactly right. Good. So here, here's some ones maybe that you haven't thought of. Um, eat whatever is served. Take a little of everything, right? But, but not so much that you don't think about the other people that are sitting around the table. You know, like the, the mashed potatoes come by. Oh, whoo, I think I'd like to have lots of those. Not so many of the Brussels sprouts, but lots of the potatoes, right? Don't ask for anything that's not already on the table, right? Uh, don't reach. Ask them to pass it to you. Then some other things, like not just at the dinner table, but how about be a good listener? Ask good questions. Be willing to be part of the conversation. Keep your feet on the floor. Stay with the family. Don't wander around. Make good eye contact. Smile, and as you said already, say thanks. Now, we know the rules don't change just because they say, make yourself at home, <laughs> right? That is not code for you can do whatever you want. As a matter of fact, be very careful and very aware when they say, make yourself at home, it means you need to be on better behavior, because they're watching out for you. It doesn't mean that you pick up the remote control and start surfing the channels, right? That, that doesn't fly, right? And, and it doesn't mean that, oh, hey, great, I don't really like what they have. I think I'm going to go help myself. What's in the refrigerator? Oh, there's something. Even leftovers look better than this meal. <laughs> or you start fishing around the, the cabinets or the pantry. That, that just doesn't work. Or I'm feeling especially tired I think I'm going to go upstairs and hit the sack. So you open the master bedroom and uh, things are falling out at you. But that's okay. You're going to help yourself to the master bedroom. And you feel kind of sticky. I think I'm going to go take a shower maybe. Those kinds of things just don't fly. Just because they say make yourself at home doesn't mean you should be at home. You are there to serve. And missions team, let me just help you to, to know when you go, you are representing the Lord. This next week, when you go, you're representing the Lord. Serve the Lord every opportunity you have. You're there to love. You're not there for leisure. Such an important thing for us to learn. Well, Peter, the apostle Peter, is kind of using this approach. He he brings this front and center again. We've heard this already on two other occasions, and now he, he brings it to our attention again. You are aliens. You are strangers. You're exiles here. 
And if you would, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let me read this for us, and then we'll, we'll dig in to the passage. If you don't have your own Bible, the one in the pew in front of you, page 1, I think 1015. So join us there. Let me read this for us as we walk into our text today. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the point? The point that Peter is making right here at the end of this section, in the middle of this letter, and I know we're just at the end of of chapter 2, we we have three chapters to go, but this really is the, the epicenter of this letter. It transitions to the next two sections. We've already finished and we're finishing the first two sections. This is a summary of what has come before, and Peter is now laying the foundation of what we're gonna see. And what starts all of this, the the overarching truth he wants you to understand is you are not home. This is not your residence. You are not a citizen here. And, and, And when you recognize that it will change everything about how you live, recognize that you are just a temporary inhabitant of this land. You are looking forward to something that's coming. So don't try to measure up to the standards of this world. Don't try to get caught up with the things that this world values. Don't adopt their philosophies. Don't don't be influenced by the, the truth claims and the convictions that they seem to have. Recognize that you are a stranger here. You're not a citizen. Don't forget you're just a guest. Peter, he wants his readers, he wants this church to come to a place where they're maximizing their life for God. And that's kind of the the title of this message, a life that's lived for the glory of God. It's it's a life that has eternity in view, a a life that that is feeling the weightiness of of what is coming and not caught up with the the trivialities and the superficial things of this life, but but is gripped by the glory of God. we've, We've been talking about that, being captured by glory. And so here we come at the very end of of the second section, and and it shouldn't surprise us that, that Peter brings us right back into center view. Think about the glory. Live your life with the glory of God in view. There are three ways Peter's going to encourage us to do this today. Three things that you need to remember so you can live your life to the max for God. First, you need to remember your true citizenship. Remember your true citizenship. Here he comes. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I love that first word, that first word, beloved. It's the word that is actually built on agape, loved ones, dear friends. Maybe some of your translations will have. Why do you think Peter starts there? Why does Peter begin with dear friends or those whom I love? Well, it's because there's 
there's going to be some difficult exhortations, hard-hitting instructions that are coming. And it's a little different when someone puts their finger in your face and they say, stop sinning, versus, dear friends, I plead with you on behalf of God, please live the way that God has called you to live. Which of those two approaches do you prefer? I imagine that most of us would prefer to be called friends. There's something that is not only endearing about that approach, but there's something that is authentic in that it's not just the bring the hammer down kind of approach. It's, I care about you. I want what's best for you. I, I desire you to experience the, the, the benefits of all that has, God has to give to you, but it only happens one way. And I'm in this with you. We're doing this together. Let's, let's recognize that, that we're in this together. I think all of those are, are bound up in this term as Peter starts this exhortation in this way. Beloved, dear friends, those whom I love. Peter's approach will conclude this section of this letter. And, and point, this is a, a section that started back in chapter 1, verse 13. And we see that, that there's a, a link, a connection between uh, the first part and the second part where, where now Peter is binding all of these concepts together. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your souls. He begs them. This is a, a desire of his heart, this parakaleo. The word that we see in Romans 12, 1, where he says, I, I beseech you. In Romans chapter 15, 30, I, I appeal to you, brothers. But also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 22, he talks about sending Tychicus to the church of Ephesus, and he says, that he may encourage your hearts. And then to the church of Corinth, he says, the God of all comfort, who comforts us with the comfort with, that we have from God. Beseeching, appealing, encouraging, comforting. All of these concepts are bound up in this word. It doesn't just come with force. It comes with encouragement. It comes with gentle urging, a tenderness that is built in to this phrase. They are sojourners. They are exiles in that they're living in a place that's not their permanent home. Exile is a stranger, not, not simply one who is passing through, but a foreigner who has, who has settled down, however briefly. It's not their place of origin. The only other place in the New Testament where this is found is, is found in, he, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. And we get a, an idea of, of the concept of, of these words, this word here. It says, these all died, speaking of Abel and Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. They died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I'll just pause there for a moment. God had made certain promises to these men. He had, he had 
told them that, that certain things were going to happen. Abraham moved from the land of Haran into Canaan, and, and he, was, he, he was promised a land and seed and blessing. But, but through the entire uh, expanse of his life, he was always a nomad, never had a place to, to put down roots, never had a permanent home. But he was looking forward to something, as we're going to see as we keep going. Verse 14, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Here's a definition for us as we think about exiles and strangers and foreigners. What are you looking forward to? What is the better country for you? Are you putting roots down here? Are you looking for uh, pleasure here, for success here, for fame and fortune here, for the accolades of friendships here? You're seeking to, to provide better comforts for yourselves here. Are you looking for a better country? Are you as a stranger, as a citizen of that place and not of this place? Are, are you looking to lay up for yourselves treasures there? Are you, are you looking for, for ways to, to please God and, and, to, and to move your life in a direction of, of calling people's attention to greater things, to better things, to eternal things, to weightier things, to glorious things? Those who understand their citizenship will come to terms with why the, what they were made for. And, and Peter keeps bringing this up because, because some of these people had been displaced. They had experienced this firsthand. Some of them had been expelled. Some of them had been driven out. They were in a land, many of them, that was a place of not their origin. It was temporary. It was not only true for them in a physical way, but Peter is making a correlation here. You, God has given you a gift. He's given you the opportunity not to only experience this in a, in a physical way firsthand, but he's, he's calling your attention to things that matter, to spiritual things, to heavenly citizenship. Embrace your upgraded identity that we saw in chapter 2, verse 10. That you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a God's own special people. You are a people for God. You have been called by his name. He, he has made you a new nation. Recognize, embrace, enjoy the identity that God has given to you. Live in such a way that, that shows where your loyalties are, where your affections are where your heart truly is, not anchored in this life anymore, but, but looking forward and pursuing the greater life, the better life, a life with God. We need to remember our citizenship. We also need to remember that we live in hostile territory. Remember, you live in hostile territory. He says this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and here it is. What does it say? Which do what? Wage war against your soul. This is not neutral territory.
territory. This is not a place where you can just settle in and not expect the enemy to come after you. Peter, in a later chapter, in chapter 5, will help you to understand and and will give you a a, a greater glimpse of of the, the battle that you're in. You are at war. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be sober-minded, be watchful. And that's our, our word, be alert or watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You are behind enemy lines. You are surrounded by those who would seek to destroy you. And by the way, if you have an earlier version of the notes, you will have this statement. There is an anti-soul force at work that's coming against you. It wants to have you. Anti-soul forces want to destroy you. They want to destroy your children. They want to destroy your grandkids. They want to destroy the people you love, the people in your family, your friends who know God. Anti-soul forces want to destroy them. You are not in neutral ground. You are behind enemy lines. Any of you who have played uh, Capture the Flag, you, you know how that game works? It, it's, it's one of my favorites. I see some takers over there. Great. So, so you have this line, right? And, and you have two sides, uh, your side and, and the enemy side, right? If, if you stay on your side of the line, you're okay. You're safe. As soon as you cross that line, now you're fair game. You get tagged and you get taken to jail. The the goal is to go on that side of the line, to grab the flag, to bring it back. Now, it's easy to dance around on your side of the line. Feel pretty safe when you're dancing around on your side of the line. But as soon as you cross that line, you know you can be tagged from any direction. We, as God's people, as those who have a citizenship in heaven, need to understand that analogy, be alert, be watchful. You are on enemy lines. You are behind enemy lines. There is a fascinating word here. It says, it wages war against your soul. It's in the middle voice. And the significance of that is, it's a battle that not as you would expect is outside of you, it is a battle that is inside. It's in the middle voice to help you recognize it, that there are forces within. You are your greatest enemy. As Jared has already said just earlier, you are your greatest enemy. The middle voice stresses the personal element to this struggle. One, One commentator puts it this way. He says, wage war is a strong term that generally means to carry out a long-term military campaign. It implies not just antagonism, but a relentless, malicious aggression. And since it takes place in the soul, it is a kind of civil war. Joined with the concept of fleshly lust, the image is of an army of lustful terrorists waging an internal search and destroy mission to conquer the soul of the believer. You are at war. And you are at war with those inner struggles, that former life 
that we've been learning about. Abstain from those pleasures that wage war against your soul, that would seek to disrupt and destroy your spirituality. Peter pulls back the veil for us in this short phrase. He wants us to understand there is a satanic agenda. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt, but make no mistake, our culture, our world, and our enemy, the devil, is a united force against your soul. Seeking to strip you from every vestige of God-glorifying love for him. They are after you in every way. And they will employ a multi-pronged strategy to destroy you. We're going to be looking over the next six weeks, starting uh, next Sunday. We're going to kind of take a, a quick break from 1 Peter. And we're going to kind of pull back for six weeks. And we're going to take some time to, to look at some of the cultural uh, truth claims that you're being bombarded with so you can learn how to defend yourself. Learn, learn how to have a, a biblical perspective. Learn how to, to navigate uh, all of these, these things, that, that your philosophies that you're being bombarded with from day to day. We're going to talk about biblical justice versus social justice. We're going to talk a little bit about critical race theory. We're going to try to understand what, what is intersectionalism, and maybe some of you haven't even heard about that. But I, but I want you to be prepared as parents, I want you to be prepared as grandparents and, and kids. I, I want you to be prepared because your schools are after you. This world is after you to destroy your godly thinking. They will seek to realign your priorities. They will seek, you to, seek to get you preoccupied with good things, even good things that have nothing to do with God. They want to deaden your senses with superficial things. They want to recondition your thinking to turn the good things into wicked things and their wicked things into good things. They want to re-architect the whole landscape of truth. Make no mistake, you are at war. And you are walking into a trap. It is a massive setup. What do you do? Well, you need to be alert, but you also need to be uh, on guard. Your, your, your mind needs to be guarded. Guard your mind. Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts. He also says at the beginning of this whole section in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. This word abstain, again, is in the middle voice. It, Peter wants to draw attention to the fact that, that only you can do this for yourself. It's, it's not something that somebody else can do for you. You must settle your heart, guard your mind, prepare for action, and be one who is ready to engage in battle because you're thinking clearly. You're thinking properly. Passions is epithemia. Deep desires and longings coveting, craving. There are evil cravings. There are evil desires. We, we saw that back in chapter 1, verse 14. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But there are also godly cravings. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 2. 
It says, like, like newborn infants, long for, crave for, desire the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Learn to replace those wicked, former, ignorant, um, selfish desires and, and replace them for, for godly, healthy cravings. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 12, 12 verse 21. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, the, the concept is, is clear. It's godly. Rather than keeping yourself and trying to stop, I'm, I'm not going to eat that cookie. I'm, I'm not going to eat that cookie. I'm not going to eat that cookie. Instead of that, say, hey, mom or dad, how, how can I help around the house? What, what can I do outside? Then you don't have to worry about thinking about the cookie, Right? The battle for your soul begins in the mind. It begins with your desires. It begins with your cravings. Learn to cultivate, nurture the kinds of cravings that are godly and healthy. It will help you to say no to the things that are ungodly and unhealthy. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desires. So what do you crave? What do you desire? How does that play out in your life? Well, um, I, I can tell you that if you were to put a, a, a big plate of cooked spinach in front of me, it's probably not going to tempt me much. You can dress it up all you want. You can make it look as, as beautiful as, as you can, but, but um, I'm not really inclined to spinach. And, and Sophia, thank you for the, the Brussels sprouts analogy. Uh, same with Brussels sprouts. Uh, you know, you could offer them. I will eat them if I come to your house, but you're not, not going to tempt me with that. Uh, however, if you put some brisket in front of me, or if you put some beef ribs, you know, the drippy kind of succulent, Beef ribs, now we have a different story, right? Or if you push in front of me a bowl of vanilla ice cream with, with some soft, gooey brownie, you know? Now we are talking about some, something to avoid, right? So learn to cultivate the kinds of desires that would say no to the spinach and would say yes to the ice cream. <laughs> See that God's way is a better country. See that God's way is going to be best for you. And as you come to experience and enjoy God's best, as you see it as, as, as a way to safeguard you from the, from the hurt and the pain that is bound to come when you are sinning, when you're growing and, 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 and running after those fleshly things and, and not abstaining from those fleshly lusts, that you, you find time and time again they do not satisfy. They only lead to hurt. They only lead to pain. But following God's way is the best way. And, and when you come to understand that and you learn to crave that and put those other things aside, God begins to help you to live in a way that is pleasing to him. When you begin to guard your mind, it shows up now in this next thing. You learn to guard your conduct. It says that 
Keep, in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This word keep is to have. It's a posture of life. Letting your godly desires steer your actions, and and that's what's going to happen. The things that you crave, the things that you desire, are the things you're going to do. They're going to lead you down the path of, hey, I, I want that, so because I want that, that's what I'm going to go after. We need to keep first things first. Otherwise, we're going to be like Pharisees. If you put the, the actions first and you put the actions in front of the desires, you're going to be doing the right things for all the wrong reasons. You're going to be a rule follower, but you're not going to be a lover of Jesus. Jesus calls out the Pharisees on several occasions in Matthew 23, but let me just direct your attention to verse 25 and 26. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. Clean up those desires. Steer your affections. Direct your cravings. Clean up those things inside, the desires that you have, and then the outside also may be clean. Your actions will follow the steering, the rudder of your desires. What a telling statement. To spend their lives learning, knowing, studying, hearing, defending, and they never got it. They had all the outside appearance of someone who loved God, but inside their heart, there was no real affection for God. And that's the true nature, though, of Obedience, not just somebody who has it looking right on the outside, but somebody who has learned to crave and desire the things that God desires. But I think it's important for us to understand, it says, let your conduct be honorable among the Gentiles. This word honorable is the word good, fine, moral character, advantageous, providing superior benefit. We, we find uh, a help for us as we look at this verse, in at least two ways, it, it correlates to, to chapter 1, verses 13 and, and 14 and 15. It says in chapter 1, verse 15, He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Wherever you look in the New Testament, wherever you look in the Old Testament, you're going to see a correlation between holiness and goodness. Because you can't have one without the other. Jesus is in responding to the, the questioner says, why do you call me good? There's only one good but God. And so goodness and holiness are not only compatible, they help to define terms. So, so Peter, in, in, in borrowing this sense, he wants you to understand that, that goodness is not goodness as the world considers good. We're going to look at this more next week. It is goodness as God commands holiness. He is the standard. And then he uses this word conduct, this this word that is used uh, not only in chapter 2, verse 12, but also in chapter 1, verse 15. This direct correlation, holiness and goodness go hand in hand. The point is this, that being honorable is not arbitrary. Being honorable is not subjective. 
It's not based on human opinion. It's not open for interpretation. It's not subject to cultural values. It's not conditioned by societal norms. There is an absolute, unwavering, transcendent, supreme, and clear standard. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. But I want you to understand that just because you live an honorable life to God, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. You you need to understand what is coming because that is what we're going to see next in verse 12. Prepare for criticism. Prepare for criticism. It doesn't matter how honorable your life is to God. Be ready because the world will not understand. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when, here it is, when they speak against you as evildoers, it's going to happen. You are going to be an affront to them. You're going to expose them. You're going to shine light on their dark heart and they're going to hate it. They're going to speak against you, slander you, and they're going to call you an evildoer. Honorable as you are, holy as you are, they will call you an evildoer, and they will believe it. Because you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be misrepresented. You're going to be mischaracterized. And they will seek to destroy you where it hurts the most. And where it hurts the most is right here. It's going to become very personal. They will assassinate your character. They will twist your words. They will undermine your integrity. They will paint you in a completely different light. They will call your priorities unbending. They will call you a person who is self-serving. They will say that you're intolerant. They will accuse you of being full of hate. They will marginalize undermine and attack your character. And when they see sin in you, everyone will know. They will bring it out into the forefront. They will seek to destroy you. This soul-destroying force is against you. Jesus, even Jesus, our perfect Savior, they called illegitimate. He's a liar. He's a blasphemer. He does these works through the power of Belial. He wants to destroy Judah. He wants to abolish the temple. They turned everything that was good about Jesus and they sought to turn it upside down. They expect to be attacked. But what is our hope? There is hope. There is something that keeps us motivated. There is something that drives us and and we find it here at the very end. Notice, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the hope. The hope is that nothing is wasted in this life. The hope is that when you live to the glory of God, when you live with the weightiness of the glory of God, kavod, by the way, is the word value, the word weightiness, that he is distinctive. The weightiness of God weighs on your heart. It presses into who you are. It drives your actions, your motives, your speech, your priorities. Everything about you is changed by the weightiness of God. And when it is, 
you can expect that nothing is wasted, that God will receive glory, and that perhaps God will change a heart so they will glorify him forever. But make no mistake, God will be glorified. We see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, it says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember your ultimate mission. Your mission is to bring glory to God. Your mission is to experience and run towards the the glory and and seek to, to reveal that glory. As we have said for the last several weeks now, to be transformed by glory, which means to allow the Spirit to have His way, to allow the imperishable Word of God, the living and imperishable seed of God's Word, to infiltrate your heart and to change everything about who you are. And when you do that, God's glory will shine. God will be glorified. And in the moment where those who are saved and unsaved will stand before him and see him for who he is, they will no longer stand. They will bow before him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess without exception that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will receive the glory he's due either for those who confess him and repent from their sins, who believe in him as their savior, who ask for forgiveness, who make him the Lord and savior of the life, who turn in repentance and turn to him. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then you get to experience and enjoy the glory of God that starts today. You'll celebrate that glory today. You will proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It begins today and it will move to eternity. Or you will glorify God by coming to terms with the punishment that you deserve and you will be cast away from God forever in hell. And you will glorify God in that as well because you will recognize that your sin separates you from a holy God. And you will glorify him as he deserves because he is meant to be glorified. In Psalm 102, verse 15, it says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord. We have that Psalm 102:15. Sorry, I know, I know I'm skipping around. We don't have that one. Okay, let's move to Psalm 86.9, I know you have that one. There we go. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Begin today. Begin to understand the weightiness of God today. Bow the knee today to God. Give your heart to him today. If you haven't already done that, begin this moment to enjoy and experience his glory and to have him transform you from one degree of glory to the other. Let's pray. God, we know that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And each one of us in this room 
those listening on the live stream and all across this world, every single person will receive what is, what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. And God, I pray that, that everyone in the sound of my voice today who has heard the message of the gospel would bow the knee before you even now and would give their life to you and would believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through you. Help them as they begin this journey and help the rest of us, oh God, to come to terms with the significance of being alert, of having a mind that is guarded and having conduct that is guarded and being prepared for the criticism that will come. Oh God, help us to understand that we are an anti-soul-searching, soul-destroying war. There's a battle that is happening. May we be prepared. May we be ready. And may we help our kids, our loved ones, our parents, our brothers or sisters, to come to a place of, of wanting you first and foremost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you today. 